you see all these on-screen effects from it. Mm -hmm. It's really the same thing with the eyes. Not a lot of people are are training it. Uh, and actually what we're seeing now with uh, kids these days, because they spend so much time like in front of computer screens or on the phones, that our, our like distance vision is essentially devolving. Like they're, they're not using it. Uh, we're having a problem with like these younger kids that are trying to get into shooting sports, like with shotgun and everything. It's, mm -hmm. They literally can't see past like the four feet in front of their face. And so it's it's really wow. simple to, to train it, right? It's spending time and getting reps in, looking at stuff like far away. Happy Friday and welcome to another episode of the Wild Strength Podcast, where we talk about all things wild, all things strength related, and really everything in between. Today, my guest is Dr. Matt Zanis. I have known Matt for a little over a year now, maybe two years now, um, but this is really the first time I have gotten the opportunity to sit down and talk with him about what he does as a physical therapist for the USA shooting team. Um, any prior conversations we've had has really just been shooting the shit at a conference. Um, and so Matt is a great guy, but yeah, this was the first time I really got to pick his brain um, on his background, on his experience, on the opportunity that he's had to be able to work with the USA shooting team. Uh, so we get into a lot of nerdy things here uh, in my mind. And once again, just another reason why I enjoy having friends that are way smarter than me so that I can pick their brain and learn so many new things. Uh, we kick off the episode really talking yeah, about Matt's background, and then we get into vision training a little bit, which if you're unfamiliar with vision training, that is really like performance training for the eyes um, and how important that is for not just Olympic level shooters, but anyone who is shooting a firearm, shooting a bow. Um, and I've had experience working with vision training in the past. So that was something that I really, uh, and it, or that was a conversation that I really enjoyed having with him. Um, and then we get into, yeah, his background as a physical therapist and then what physical therapy and movement looks like for the shooting athlete. Um, anyone who shoots a shotgun, who shoots a rifle, who shoots a bow, it might seem like such a simple movement, but we really dive into the importance of having a big movement library and being able to move in all different planes of motion and all different directions so that these simple movements can be way more efficient. And in a sport like shooting, efficiency is going to be key. And that's going to be the difference between a podium, the difference between meddling um, at such a high level. Uh, so yeah, this was an incredible conversation. I enjoyed it. I hope to have Matt on here again because there's so many things that I wanted to ask him about. Um, and we didn't end up having quite enough time to squeeze everything in. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I do. I know I say that for all of these, but I have not had a doozy on here yet. Um, I've just had some really great conversations. Uh, so with all that being said, let's get into today's episode. All right. Welcome to another episode of the Wild Strength Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Matt Zanis. Um, his walk-up song is The Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin. So we're going to get things kicked off with that, get the energy going here, and then we'll get into it. God. Yes. <laughs> Such a good song. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yes, right when the beat kicks off. 
Wow. I feel like I should just play the whole song throughout the entire It's like, a, it's like an homage to my Scandinavian heritage. Yeah. I'm like a yes. pseudo Viking. Oh, I love that so much. All right. Like I said, we have Dr. Matt Zanis here or Matt, however you want to refer to him. Um, like most people I've had on this podcast so far, I know him through strength and conditioning, through the NSCA, through the human performance field. Um, Matt is the movement expert. Uh, if you go and find him on Instagram, Rooted and Movement, you will see what I'm talking about. Um, and he is also a physical therapist for the USA shooting team, which I was kind of talking with him a little bit before this. I've not really ever asked him too much about that. So maybe that's what we get started with. Um, but I'll let you introduce yourself, say as much or as little as you want, and then we'll get into it. Oh boy, where do we begin? So many stories. Um, yeah, my name is Dr. Matt. I'm, I'm actually from uh, the backwoods of Pennsylvania. Uh, so grew up in the coal region, which is kind of super redneck. Redneck. I kind of grew up on a mountain uh, away from everybody. Um, and I grew up in a very predominant baseball family out there. And yeah, dad was like a collegiate left-handed pitcher. Mom was actually a collegiate sprinter. Uh, my brother was a right-handed pitcher. I had some pretty good genetic gifts um, that were in my family, except I got none of them. None of them whatsoever. That's how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I, I was a genetic trash can. Um, but I, I but I grew up there, you know, hunting, fishing, doing a lot of shooting sports with my dad mm -hmm. and everything like that. And uh, I always had a really good work ethic as a hard worker, which really helped me get to where I am today because um, kind of get like a go against the green guy, ask a lot of questions. I don't just like to follow the herd. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I pushed the limits and pushed the boundaries <laughs> on people. And I was like one of those guys who uh, – who, who went rogue in high school because I found weight training. That's kind of where this whole story started. Um, Cause I grew up in a time period when they thought that weight training was bad for baseball players, which we know mm -hmm. now it's like, could be further yeah. from the truth. Right. Sure, yeah. um, and like, I would, I would get hurt every single year trying to throw more bat, more sprint, more trying to improve what little genetic potential that I had. So <laughs> I just kept getting hurt, kept getting yeah. injured, like all kinds of crazy shit, like shoulder issues, knee issues, back problems, feet problems. Sounds about right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, once I found weight training, I was like, well, I'll just screw it. I'm going to go see if I can get stronger. And guess what happened? Like all those little nagging pains and injuries has kind of seemed to mm -hmm. melt away, uh, at least in, in that moment anyway. And then I had that like, light, light bulb moment right there. Like I am really a much better coach and an athlete and a much better provider than a player. And, can, and, I, and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try and take this into a career now. Uh, and so went off to the University of Pittsburgh where I got my degree in athletic training. So the guy who ran out in the field when somebody got hurt, um, did that for a little while, worked with the Pittsburgh Pirates, so stayed within the baseball realm. Nice, okay. And then went to uh, Duke in North Carolina for my doctorate in physical therapy, which was kind of like that nice pivotal moment for me because it, it really kind of set me on this trajectory with the opportunity uh, to, to really go like intern anywhere in the country. And one of those places actually happened to be out here at the Arizona Cardinals in Phoenix. And so fell in love with the area. Never wanted to move back to the cold of Pennsylvania. <laughs> just like, this is I too bet. good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I got sun all year round. It's gorgeous. People are healthy. They're active. And I, like, I knew I had to put down roots here. So two weeks after graduating Duke, jumped ship and, and nice. did a cross-country trip out here to Arizona and just never looked back. Nice. Um, and it, it's interesting, too, because I, I started my, my career in the insurance-based model of physical therapy, which, if you don't mm -hmm. know, it's fucking terrible. Yeah. <laughs> it's awful. Very much so. Um, God, like seeing four people an hour, like not really, not really making any meaningful progress with patients, just like kind of checking the box and collecting insurance money. I'm uh, hoping so I, they I, do I, what you tell them to do. <laughs> hope is an understatement. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I could handle that for about two years. That was my limit. And within that second year, like halfway through, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't do this. 
And so I just completely jumped ship. I had no business plan, nothing whatsoever, but I just put a table in the back of a CrossFit gym and started seeing clients. Nice. Seeing, that's kind of where this all started, which was great because it actually solved the problem that I had, which is time. I didn't okay. have um, an opportunity to like really go and, and do anything different, but now that I didn't have a job. <laughs> I can do whatever I, I want. Had a lot of time. I could do whatever I want. I was able to spend you know, 60, 90 minutes with my clients really help them get better. I saw I didn't need to see them in such a large volume or so frequently. Um, but then the most important part is that that freed up my time to go do other things. And it was really interesting because I, I do believe that the universe is like giving you and providing you what you need in every specific moment of your life. Um, mm -hmm. And in that same year, I ended up getting a call from um, an old mentor of mine when I was at Duke, he was in Atlanta. And he did some work with the Olympics back in the like 80s and 90s. See, I told you, we, we get back full circle here. We come back around to that yeah. intro. Um, and he uh, he gave me a random call. It's like, I'll never forget it. It was like two weeks before Christmas. And he's like, hey, do you want an opportunity working with some Olympic athletes? I'm like, say less. Who do I need to talk to? Count me in. Yeah. <laughs> Count me in, absolutely. <laughs> and uh, it actually ended up being the USA shooting team. And I was like, this is perfect because yeah. I grew up doing it. I know what their movement patterns are like. I understand trap and ski and shooting pistols and rifles. And you know, I was a competitive archery shooter uh, in high school as well. And so I understood what they were going through. And the coolest part for me was that it's really sad to say this now, but like our Olympic committee didn't actually consider them athletes, which was mind boggling. I'm like, not only did you have to do this like immense hand-eye coordination, but they are actually moving their bodies in very specific patterns or having to hold sustained positions for very, very long times. They are athletes true you know, through and through. And so I was like, I'm going to make a difference on these people. And within about three months, we had the injury reduction risk down by 80%, which was awesome. And that was actually just starting with the feet. Wow. <laughs> low, low key foot fetish. That's where actually I start all my uh, assessments with, cause it's like the only, Connection point with you out the ground. It gives me all this information that I need to really start to really make some progress with them. But um, yeah, so the, the shooting team has been my main focus, and that kind of shifted really niche down into really honing in, just working with shooting athletes of all different disciplines, including like sporting clays, uh, a lot of the sport pistol stuff now out here in Arizona, and then a lot of the tactical professions, so uh, police, military, SWAT, all that type of stuff as well. Nice. So that's super cool. You, you kind of mentioned growing up, you were shooting a lot. Um, was that, I know you shoot a bow, like you're into archery. Did you shoot every sort of firearm? Was it just through hunting? Did you do it for fun? Like, what did that look like? A little bit of everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, like any, you know, teenage boy, I was into getting, like getting into a lot of mischief. Uh, <laughs> and th this is where I got really good at shooting a bow was because my bedroom uh, I live on a mountain, remember? So I was like in this all yeah. cedar and stone home and my bedroom window opened up to like an embankment that was maybe, you know, 30, 40 yards away from the window. And as a kid, when I started shooting a bow, I would open up that window and shoot anything yes. that walked by, meaning okay. squirrels, rabbits, birds, yeah. groundhogs, you name it. I would nice. pin it to the embankment and then ultimately would have to win there and like finish it off with a 22 or something. But <laughs> I know that sounds terrible, but I was a child. Okay. <laughs> so, hey, we've probably all been there. <laughs> it, yeah. But I mean, I look back at it now. It's like, it, it got me really good at being accurate at that distance. And you know, it was a lot of reps that I was getting in. Right. And so uh, archery ended up being like my main one. It still is today. I, I love shooting a bow. 
And that's, mm-hmm. I prefer hunting that way as well. It's more of a game to me. It's more strategy, kind of like yeah. chess versus checkers, mm-hmm. um, which I know you, you full well because you, you, you do the same thing. Uh, yep. I think you actually get out a lot more than I do now. I'm super jealous and envious <laughs> of you with that. I try um, to. <laughs> I'm like, where is, where is Whitney at now? Colorado for elk? What is she doing? I have an Arizona tag, actually. I'm going to be in Arizona in January. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah. So I'll I'll be here for most of January. So we should get together then for sure. Yeah, yeah. I'll let Um, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Because I even have like a a 30-yard backyard. So I'll get reps in there. Funny story about that. I have one of those like really nice, you know, 3D targets, like the the square ones that's rated to handle a crossbow. And... I was practicing the, the very first very first time I brought it back home and I was practicing in the yard and I put the bag like right up against my cinder block fence wall mm-hmm. and I'm shooting shooting next thing you know I hear this like like this loud thud like right into the cinder block sure enough I had poked all the way through the target and into the cinder block wall I'm like I'm only I'm like 70 pound draw weight shooting 400 grain arrows I guess I'm putting some type of velocity on this thing. And yeah. Totally yikes. destroyed that target. Um, but yeah, so, so listen, I'll, I'll go off on so many tangents, but uh, getting back to that original question. Yeah. I, I, my dad had, was a part of a gun club. And so okay. he would have me out there on the weekends. I was in the Boy Scouts and we did all that, like mm-hmm. learning how to shoot and the safety behind it and everything like that. And so did a lot of trap and skeet with him. And the funny part is he was a lefty, remember? And so I learned on lefty firearms. Yeah, yeah, I had to. I didn't have a choice. And okay. so everything was Are backwards you for me. left-handed? Fuck no. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Listen, okay, so I, I tried. I was a baseball player, right? And yeah. so I'm I'm six foot one and I have a six five wingspan. So my dad noticed this from an early age and tried to turn me into a lefty and have me be a first baseman because of the ability to stretch and as a mm-hmm. left-handed um, thrower. And uh, I just I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I could like decent like swing kind of a little bit. With the bat lefty lefty but no the other i'm not i'm not ambidextrous by any means um but it was a lot of fun and like you know my my grandfather's all collected old firearms and everything like that too and so i had uh, a lot of exposure to so many different guns growing up and it was mm-hmm. it was just fun for us to get out there and like target practice and whatnot yeah no that's yeah. exciting yeah i am right-handed but i only shoot left-handed because i'm left eye dominant uh, there it is like, Yep. I grew up shooting like handguns, rifles, like right-handed all my life and was never great at it, but I just did it because I enjoyed it and was like, mm-hmm. man, like it's not my career. I'm not competing. Like it's just fun. I'm doing it. Yeah. But the second I switched to shooting, well, so I started shooting my bow with the left hand. And I, I remember when I first got one, I was in the shop and I was like, just, I don't know if this means anything, but I'm left eye dominant. And I knew that through a group that I had worked with previously, mm-hmm. Um, and cause I remember we were doing like, uh, some training, like stress drills with them and we were just shooting like fake, uh, handguns and they were like, Whitney, you look like you're reaching to look th- like, look down the barrel, mm-hmm. you should probably test your eye dominance. And sure enough, we did. And I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, I've been doing it wrong all my life. Um, but and yeah, when I was more accurate, I could be now. <laughs> oh no, it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. It changes things. Yeah. So then, yeah, when I, I, was looking for bows the first time and I was shooting right-handed ones and I was like, I don't know. I know with it being a shooting sport, eye dominance mm-hmm. probably matters. Like I'm left eye dominant. A little bit. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> and then everyone in the shop was like, yep, you need a left-handed bow. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, everyone thinks I'm crazy because I'm right-handed, but I shoot left-handed, but that's the only thing well, I can do on my left side. <laughs> we actually see this a lot more in females. So I think, yeah. I, uh, yeah. now don't quote me on this, but the, I think the percentage is like 35% of females are like 
opposite. So like either right hand dominant, left eye dominant or vice versa. Um, and, you know, in the shotgun sports, we see this a lot. And, and exactly what you, what you just mentioned right there, it's like they would mount the gun as a right handed, but their left eye dominant, you'd see like this head tilting thing mm -hmm. to try and get yeah. the eye over the bead. And you're like, yeah, oh, that's not right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or you're I like really stretching your like neck to get around it. <laughs> Craning everything over. Yeah. 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 So you have to pick up on those things. Otherwise, it's, you're in for a... It's doable. I mean, especially the shotgun because you're not closing one eye. Um, mm -hmm. You can get away with it for a little bit, but it'll eventually start to cause a lot of like neck and shoulder issues over yeah. time too. So I'm curious. Yeah. I like because I'm so left eye dominant and I don't mm -hmm. know your, your knowledge and the eye dominant stuff, but I cannot shoot with my right eye open with both eyes open like i have to close an eye and everyone's like oh you should probably practice with with both your eyes open and i just can't even see through my sight if i do that yeah yeah so that can be changed like anything else yeah. the body will adapt sure. if you mm -hmm. impart the right training stimulus and so what we do with our um our shooting athletes is we'll have, they obviously have to wear glasses right mm -hmm. so part of the whole safety thing but we'll cover we'll cover it up with like tape on one okay. eye yeah uh, so you blur it out but you still have both eyes open. Does that mm -hmm. make sense? Mm -hmm. And so you can be, you can begin to you can begin to train it like that, and eventually uh, the, the the brain will normalize that, and you'll be able to shoot with both eyes open again. And some of them, it's just what you end up doing is like you cover the whole lens, and then you start narrowing it down to like maybe like the size of your pinky, so okay. like there's a little bit of the yep. of the vision that's obscured. Um, but like with the shotgun, anyway, when you're going after a, a clay target like that, like you're you're not really looking at the bead. You're not really focusing on the near part of it. You're looking mm -hmm. peripherally and out, out. And yeah. so you're, you're trying to get train your eyes to focus on that, that far away vision uh, to see that the target more clear than the actual bead of it. And so it's probably need both eyes. Right. For that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. You're closing one eye. You're taking a whole side of your peripheral vision away, which doesn't make it uh, uh, that much of an efficient movement then because um, the less field of vision you can see, the worse off, like the slower yeah. you're going to be. Okay. Uh, because with, especially like with these ski targets, the crossing ones, when they're kind of going from a high house and a low house, mm -hmm. you have to get both of those targets in under 1.7 seconds at the international level. So everything's wow. happening super, super quick. Um, yeah. and so the minute you pull the trigger on the first target, like you have, you already have to see the second target going to be able to get to it in time. So if you got one yeah. eye closed, you're pretty screwed. <laughs> yeah. I know I've wanted to get into like bird hunting for a while now. And I'm like, I just mm. need to go skeet shooting first. Like same thing before I got into bow hunting, I shot my bow for yeah. two years just at targets. I wanted to be like decent at it. Yeah. And uh, so I'm like, I need to go skeet shooting. But but I, I am aware of that. I'm like, I need to shoot with both eyes. I'm significantly losing mm -hmm. yeah, literally half of my field mm -hmm. of vision when I can only shoot with one eye um so that's something yeah, i should probably i've seen like um archers shoot with like a patch on their eye sure um so it's interesting i guess it made sense as you kind of said like making that patch or covering it up a little bit smaller as time goes on but does the yeah. body not think that that's the same as having your eyes closed or that well, eye it's like a constraint based movement therapy so the, the best mm. the best analogy i can make with this is like um, this is coming back from like uh, my my old school PT days, my standard of care PT days, and I actually mm -hmm. like work with, with stroke patients and everything like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, you would, uh, you would. I'm so far removed from that, so please do not ask me any questions on. <laughs> I'm just gonna mention um, it and leave sports, it there. Sports and orthopedics only, please. Um, but we would do we do what's called constraint based therapy, where if they had a stroke in the left side of the brain, it would affect the right side of the body, mm -hmm. and so you would end up 
constraining the quote unquote good side. You'd put like mm-hmm. oven emits on it and stuff like that so that you couldn't use it because that, that would be the dominant side. And so your brain would have to rewire and only use that side. And so the same thing can happen here when you cover up that eye. Now you're still allowing the eye muscles to work, even though they can't really see because they're not, they're not working to keep the eye shut. Mm. Right? So they're open and you still have all of your uh, muscles around the eye. There's six of them that can still track, right? Because remember, it's not totally blocked. It's just yep. blurry from the okay. tape. It's like a, like a clear tape, not like, yep. a, not like a solid duct tape. It's just like a, yeah, so it's just like a blur, like just to blur out the vision a little bit, but then you can still kind of see. And so mm-hmm. over time, it'll train, it'll train the vision that way. That's actually a fantastic question. I've never been asked that before. Yeah, it's super. Uh, I did. I spent a little bit of time working um, in the human performance lab at the Air Force Academy here in Colorado Springs. And uh, Diana Bollinger, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She does a lot with vision training. And so Mm -hmm. I was kind Mm -hmm. of exposed to that before I had got even got into shooting as often as I was. Um, So I know there's so many different things you can do. I just never really looked into the intricacies of it, but there's such a cool aspect of training. It's fascinating for me because like, you know, um, I told you a little bit of my background about using the feet as my starting point for assessment. Mm -hmm. And it's because nobody was doing it at the Mm -hmm. time. Right. But it had such a profound impact, like such a a large ROI, which is a minimal amount of Mm -hmm. investment to fixing the feet. You see all these upstream effects from it. Mm -hmm. It's really the same thing with the eyes. Not a lot of people are, are training it uh, and actually what we're seeing now with uh, kids these days because they spend so much time like in front of computer screens or on the phones that are are like distance vision is essentially devolving <laughs> like they're they're not using it uh and mm-hmm. we're having a problem now with like these younger kids that are trying to get into shooting sports like with shotgun and everything it's mm-hmm. they literally can't see past like the four feet in front of their face and so it's it's really wow. simple to, to train it right it's spending time and getting reps in looking at stuff like far away and so like here in phoenix like i'm looking out my my window right now and i have you know the view of a a beautiful mountain Mm -hmm. in the background but that's far away right and so throughout the day i will actually purposely and intentionally look out there at that mountain especially Mm -hmm. if i'm on calls all day long just to to give my eyes another field of vision to something to to focus on that's farther away Mm -hmm. and so that's one of the ways to improve eye health as well and to reduce a lot of the strain around the eye and actually improve the vision too it's just it's that simple you just have to do no, it yeah, right and it's like with anything else like if you're you can only adapt if you're exposing to different things and, and like you said kids these days are just watching their tv or playing games or on their phones all the time and if they're not yep. looking at things that are farther away than that really ever then all they can see is what's mm-hmm. right in front of them and, and that never yeah. crossed my mind but it makes total sense absolutely absolutely yeah and it's it's really sad too because they're you're starting to see a lot of uh the removal of uh, the different like shooting sports from like high schools and stuff right now, like mm-hmm. they're not being funded yeah. and everything. And um, I try to encourage so many kids to get into this because it's it's actually a really fast way to get yourself to an Olympic level athlete. Um, yeah. Not a lot of people are doing it, yeah. and like you can you can get really good at it pretty quickly as long as you put the time. It's, mm-hmm. You know, it's a little bit different than say something like trying to become a professional baseball player. Like yeah, it, it's all repetition. Yeah. 100% repetition and yeah. you know you there's to an extent like you can you can only put so much lead down range before you actually have to work on like the process and the skill and the technique of it mm-hmm. uh, but yeah so just getting good at like and getting comfortable with putting that much lead down range is a great starting point right and then mm-hmm. you start to train the body into becoming more mechanically efficient uh, and you can you can put yourself at a pretty high level like we have guys and girls that are like 16 to 18 years old like going to their first olympics Right. It's, it's pretty cool. Wow. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, you can, you can, especially if you start at such an early age. That's awesome. And do, 
So what do, and, and kind of maybe on the topic of division training and stuff like that, but yeah. what does training for a precision Olympic level shooter look like? Oh boy. So from a technique <laughs> standpoint with their actual, the sports skill or like what I do with it, wherever you want to do okay. what you do too. Like, what are you, what is like your involvement in that? And then like kind okay. of maybe what you know about what they do outside of that yeah. as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I do work with a number of athletes that are very process oriented. Uh, one of them mm -hmm. is Vincent Hancock. He's our three-time gold medalist in ski. Mm -hmm. He's arguably the greatest shotgun shooter of all time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think, I believe he was 16 when he went to his first Olympics wow, in, yeah. in London. And anyway, so he, he's very, very process oriented and has essentially broken down the sport so much and he has a very specific way of teaching it and the technique and has like turned it into a repeatable, a repeatable process. Right. Mm -hmm. And so from that standpoint, what you see is there's a lot of, a lot of, like I said, a lot of athletes go out and just kind of shoot to shoot, but they're not really training anything. Like, yeah, you'll yeah. go like, oh, okay, I'm going to train station two today or I'm going to train station six today. Uh, but they're, they don't quite understand like how to gamify it. Like you can okay. work on your hold points, you can work on your break points, but how's the body moving? Right. And so how are you setting okay. yourself up? Which way are your feet facing? Like it's breaking down into the nitty gritty detail. Like, are you using your lower body to move the gun or are you very handy and you're using the upper body in the trunk? Um, okay. So that in and of itself is like the sports specific skill of it. And, and you know, Vinny has done a really got, great job breaking that down. And then where I come in is, you know, my superpower is pattern recognition. So I'm really good at watching people move and figuring out those like little, little itty bitty limiting factors or nuances that might be the source of the pain or limiting them from achieving their full athletic potential. And like, if I can get some of these athletes just to improve like a half or a full percentage point, like that's the difference between either not making a final, making a final or yeah. making the podium or not making the podium in a final. Like those, that, it comes down to one or two targets sometimes. Um, and a lot of it comes down to how efficiently are you moving the gun? How, how well can you manage the stress of a situation like that? And so I look at it from, you know, globally speaking, that a lot of the training that I put these men and women through is really all about stress inoculation. Like how can you do something very, very difficult in a controlled environment to bolster your ability to be more resilient in a stressful situation out on a range, especially mm -hmm. on an international level when you've got like camera crews and, and, and you know, people are watching you and you've got some other really high level athletes out there, like it starts to take an impact on your yeah. thought process and your mental game as well. So I like your vision. physical mm -hmm. and the vision. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And the nutrition yeah. is a whole other side of it. Okay. Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> got some stories there too. Um, but like, like where I really, really like to work with these athletes is break them down, put them through a whole entire mm -hmm. movement assessment, see where they're lacking uh, from an efficiency standpoint, and then use that with the knowledge that I have about the other disciplines and the technique to build a training program to help them improve those component parts of the sport itself, right? And so the way I look at this, mm -hmm. it's kind of like a, the chunking method of education. Like we learn letters to make words, words make sentences, and mm -hmm. we make paragraphs, paragraphs tell stories. Mm -hmm. Our movement is really the same thing, mm -hmm. right? I just break it yeah. down into those little component parts and give you the tools to rebuild from those component parts to tell your own story. What's your movement story? Because mm -hmm. the way I move is gonna be different than the way you move, Whitney. Like we're we're two totally different size individuals. Very much like so, yes. Different, <laughs> very much. <laughs> Anthropometrics and limb lengths, and yeah. you know, our nervous system is wired differently as well. Mm -hmm. We had different uh, upbringings. The movement patterns that I trained as a kid are different from yours. We have different perceptions and belief systems around pain. So it all impacts mm -hmm. uh, that movement story. And so the training that I give them and I develop for them is unique to their own bodies, unique to their own 
individual characteristics uh, to help them learn how to use their body in a more efficient and economical way. Uh, so that, yes, yeah, so they can be more skilled at the sport that they're that they're performing in, uh, but then also to make their their movement more economical so they don't they don't break down as easily, right? Because that's honestly what's one of the biggest reasons why um, these shooting athletes will miss a target here or there is because like the stress load of having to hold that shotgun up, for example, it's only eight pounds, eight, eight and a half pounds, mm. but over, you know, 250 targets in a competition, that takes a toll. Yeah. It takes a toll. And so like, that's the biggest limiting factor we see with men versus women in this is, you know, inherently women are just not as strong in the upper body mm -hmm. as men are. Yeah. And so the men can get away with it for a little bit longer. Uh, but that's where like my demographic has shifted now. I'm like 70% female in the shooting athlete world because of just giving them the tools to make their upper body stronger and more resilient to be able to handle mm -hmm. the shotgun. Now all of a sudden you see them like just destroying people out there. Uh, because I will say this, women are naturally a better shot than men. I've heard that. Across the board. They <laughs> I've are. Heard that, yeah. um, and so it's like, you can train that and give them the tools out of soft foundation. They can crush people, crush mm -hmm. people, including many, many men. I've had my ass kicked by many of my shooting <laughs> athletes, female shooting athletes before. Yeah. And I don't even care. <laughs> it's okay. I can accept that. <laughs> no, that's funny. Yeah. That's, and I talk about like, as a coach, like most people, and obviously you're working with Olympic level athletes, but like most people don't need super database, scientific, high level programs. Um, but I think when you look into that, like even someone who's maybe like, I used to compete in powerlifting. And so like, when you've done that for years and years, you get to a point where like, even just adding five pounds to your max lift becomes really hard. And that's where someone mm -hmm. like you can come in and assess the movement. Like maybe I've never, I have, but like for someone else, maybe they've never had their movement assessed and like, what can you do different in your squat pattern or, or whatever pattern in your shooting mm -hmm. pattern? Um, to make it more efficient. And I think efficiency yeah. is what a lot of people don't think about. And it's, I think, the biggest key and being better at anything, right? Like, mm -hmm. if Absolutely. you can be more efficient, you can do it for longer. Um, you can get stronger in a more efficient pattern. You can usually take a lot more load in that. And then when you talk about the stress component of it, like, I'm a huge nerd on stress. That's like what my research is in. Um, mm -hmm. And so like, even when you're moving more efficiently, like say you might be stressed and naturally your movement pattern is going to maybe break down a little bit um, or like your heart, re your heart rate starts to go up, which is a whole nother story in shooting sports. You have to be able to control your heart rate in shooting. <laughs> it's one of the biggest components of it. Yeah. Yes, yes, biggest, yeah, probably yep. the biggest. Um, yep. But when you're moving more efficiently, you have less impact from that. You're, you're still going to yeah. have the impact of the stress, right? But it's mm -hmm. definitely going to reduce that impact. And I think so few people recognize that. And that's, you know, that's really why I think, you know, we're both strength, strength conditioning coaches. And I think yeah. that our, our, our like discipline of strength conditioning should really be called movement strength conditioning. And, mm -hmm. and in that order as well, because, you know, you know strength yeah. and conditioning are obviously, obviously measurable components of somebody's mm -hmm. health and fitness, right? And however you want to measure that, it's totally cool. Like how much weight you could squat or what your 40 time is, like that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, like you just described, what's the rate limiting factor here? It's how well you move. And if you never take the time to really break that down, you're mm -hmm. gonna reach a, a breaking point, a plateau at some point. Um, and like, listen, I am all about people getting stronger. Absolutely. You know, wasn't it Mark Ripito that says stronger people are harder to kill? 
It's true. Yes, like, yeah, absolutely. But, it, but once again, there is a rate limiting factor there as well. What's the rate of yeah. returns, diminishing returns there, and how strong is strong enough? Mm-hmm. Right, powerlifting by all means, that is the measurable component of that sport. You have mm-hmm. to be able to miss, lift the most amount of weight possible to succeed. Mm-hmm. That's a totally different story than strength conditioning for a shooting athlete, strength conditioning oh, for absolutely. a soccer player, strength conditioning mm-hmm. for a baseball player. I'll tell you right now, from example, with the shooting sports, there, there, there are a couple of international athletes that I know of that, that like to weight train and have literally built themselves into a movement prison and become so muscle bound mm-hmm. that they just, they can't move efficiently anymore. They're not elastic, right? They mm-hmm. can't use that innate um, energetic recoil or spiraling or coiling pattern in the body to move the gun efficiently. And you know where that shows up the most? In a final. You brought up stress. What happens when we get stressed out? Shit tightens down even more. Right? Mm-hmm. Your muscles become even more tonic, more contracted. And now your, your movement's even jerkier. Or maybe you hesitate. Mm-hmm. Because it's just, it's just not, it's not relaxed enough to be smooth, if that makes sense. Which is going to yeah. impact the heart rate and everything like that. Because then you start telling yourself the stories. I'm like, why am I not moving the same way I did in the, in the competition? I've literally have watched, and I, I won't say his name, but he's a, a French shooter. And in the Tokyo Olympics in 21, he shot a 124 out of 125. Like missed one target and was mm-hmm. the first one out of the final. Wow! <laughs> because he was one of those guys that was just so inefficient with his movement because he's so yeah. muscle bound. Like you can see it, and you know it's going to happen because he just can't manage that stress load and his body can't respond appropriately. And that's yeah. the type of stuff that I like to look at and like break down. Like that stuff fascinates me so much because really yeah. that's what it comes down to. That's what's going to be that little difference that makes you either a gold medalist at the Olympic Games or the first one out of a final and nobody hears about you. Yeah. That's interesting because that kind of makes me think on the topic of, like you said, a lot of these shooters can be in the Olympics by like 16, 17 years old if they're starting like relatively Mm -hmm. younger, Um, Mm -hmm. kind of on the topic of like the long-term athletic development, like youth training, youth sports, and like uh, being so specific at a young age Um, because Mm -hmm. I've had it and I'm sure multiple people and you have even had like similar experience with similar athletes. Uh, there was a guy that was in a unit that I was working with and he was a collegiate baseball player. He tried to go pro, um, pro ball didn't really work out for him. So enters into the military. Um, and he like moved very well and you could tell, like, just watching him do different things in the weight room, you could tell he was a mm-hmm. baseball player. Like just those kids who played it all their life. You can just pick them out. <laughs> they, What's that supposed to mean, Whitney? Yeah, I feel called saying. out right now. Yeah. <laughs> out like sore thumbs usually but like you uh like one of the coaches i was working with he was really big on like his movement assessment when guys first came to the unit included an overhead squat and his overhead squat was terrible (laughs) um and i get it like that's part of like in the research a lot of people use that as a movement assessment um but like that coach wanted to do everything in his power to have this specific person have the perfect overhead squat when his movement was very efficient in everything that he was doing because his body had just kind of adapted to these things over time. But mm-hmm. that coach thought that the overhead squat was the end all be all. And if he didn't have a good overhead squat, then he wasn't good at anything else. Whereas this athlete has become very good and moving and what's most efficient for him and, mm-hmm. and different things. And he was very strong, like you said, and, and mm-hmm. even changing uh, like 
something like his mobility or whatever would make him lose strength. And obviously he would initially, right. He could get that strength back. Um, and so that was one thing that he would always fight back about too, was like, Oh, like I'm strong enough. And if you like, and he kind of understood it too, like being in sports and having strength coaches, he was like, and if I am like more mobile here, then I'm going to lose strength here. And I'm like, that's just how it works. <laughs> that's well, it, it. But you have to understand what you're willing to like, what's the trade-off? What are you, what do you want to be better at? It's a cost benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, if you work towards one goal, there's going to be uh, a degradation in another one. It's just as simple as like, you know, trying to train max strength and then also be in a marathon runner at the same time. You're going to be pretty fucking nice. terrible at both. Yeah. It, yeah right. <laughs> yeah. Um, although I think I, I just saw a video of this one guy that like he deadlifted 500 pounds and then ran like a five minute mile or something like that. It was the weirdest thing ever. Whoa. I don't know. Of course, it's stuff that pops up on my Instagram. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. It, it's a it's a cost benefit thing, and and you know you bring up assessments like that. It's like okay, is an overhead squat the end all be all an assessment? No, we we can. Yeah. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, and actually, like uh, when I was at Duke, Greg Cook who developed the functional mm -hmm. movements that, mm -hmm. that's part of. Yep. He was really good friends with one of our professors, so. I was I was okay. lucky enough to be there when he was like first starting this thing. Oh, cool! Okay, like we got to be test subjects and learn about it from like the initial infancy infancy phase of it. Um, and then of course now all the research comes out and it's like, oh well, it's actually no more predictive than a coin flip. <laughs> like, okay, great. It doesn't mean that it's useless. There's still sure. utility there. Yeah, but what absolutely. are you looking at, right? Do I need to make somebody have a great overhead squat to be a good athlete and to be you know, resistant to injury? No. no. But what does it give us? All right, so it may give you an ability of, let's just say, compressive strength through the hip flexors. Because mm -hmm. you can't compress through the hip flexors and maintain an upright torso, you're not going to be able to do that very well. Yeah. Ankle range of motion, upper back rate, uh, range of motion, thoracic extension. You don't get thoracic extension, you can't take your arms up overhead. Are mm -hmm. you shifting one way or the other? might give you an idea like, okay, well, baseball player, right? I was very, very good at turning left. But I was like mm -hmm. Zoolander. I couldn't turn right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, could, I, could, yeah. I could rotate to the left all day long. Uh, uh -huh. That caused some problems. I would naturally drift to the left when I squatted, right? Mm -hmm. That was my strong side, right? I couldn't rotate back, so that means I couldn't get my right arm as far overhead. Ironically enough, that's where I had a shoulder surgery way back in the day, right? So all this stuff kind of kind of plays out that way, but it, it gives us information then. Okay, well, yeah, we know that context, context is key. Okay? Mm -hmm. They were a baseball player. If they're right-handed, they're likely pretty good at turning left. And so it gives you uh, evidence then as to like what you're seeing on assessment. Mm -hmm. Okay, because, you know, ultimately, when I do these movement assessments on, on these athletes, I tell them straight up from the very, very beginning, like, I am going to break your ass down. It's going to feel mm -hmm. terrible. Like, it's going to feel like I'm picking you apart just for the sake of picking you apart. But it's all out of love, number one. Yeah, okay? yes. And then also, it, it, it's just information, mm -hmm. right? We, we can use the context of your history to give us evidence as to how your body has been moving and it and your body's smart like it's figured out the best way that it knows how to make you as efficient as it knows how right now and so that's great mm -hmm. so you're already strong in these patterns i don't want to take you out of those but let's just work on the stuff that you're not good at like which wh which joint range of motion you're not good at going into what kind of motor control patterns or muscle synergy firing patterns are you not good at moving into mm -hmm. let's work on those in the gym to balance you out and that's really all that it comes down to because you know my skeet shooters are really the same way mm -hmm. if you're right-handed you're really good at turning left but then you also have to turn back during reverse yeah. like that so if you're not good at it we have to train that stuff 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so a lot of these guys and girls, like I said, they're not good at using their legs. They will use their hands and their arms and their upper body for everything. So we have to do things in the gym. Like one of my favorites is taking them into a Bulgarian split squat pattern. But then once again, providing constraints around mm-hmm. it. Right. And this is what I love about like the strength conditioning field. There's, there's no magic movement. No, it's going to fix your problems. Yeah. It's really just about your intention and your purpose behind mm-hmm. it that matters. And so something as simple as a Bulgarian split squat, which everybody is familiar with at this point. And everybody right? hates. <laughs> and everybody hates. There's no, yeah, there's, I don't know anybody that likes it. If you do, you're fucking crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to have a psychological eval on you for <laughs> yeah, sure. Let's talk, uh, please. But for example, like if you're not good at maintaining a soft knee bend to actually use your mm-hmm. ankles and your hips to move the gun, I'll use that and we'll put mm-hmm. you into a Bulgarian split squat pattern. And then I'll do things like, okay, let's maybe take a weight to the outside and maybe turn over that leap leg. Or my favorite is like, do you even know what a soft knee bend feels like? Because mm-hmm. clearly you can't replicate it out in the range. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and, and listen, I've, I've watched Vinny coach athletes on this and he would give every single cue that he would know how to get them into these postures and these positions. And the kids just still couldn't do it. Right. And that was because their bodies just had no, had no awareness of it. There was no capacity there. And so that's yeah. kind of where we, we marry these these things together with the, the movement and the strength conditioning and the sport specific skill side of things is okay, they got no awareness of soft knee bend. Let's put them in a Bulgarian split squat. Let's teach them, okay, what does that feel like? So this one kid, for example, would drop all the way down so he had no essential control over it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then when he would stand up, his knee would just go straight back into hyperextension. Mm. So he would just like drop into like these end ranges yeah. and had no control over <laughs> the middle. And so, all right, cool. Well, let's do this in front of a mirror then. Let's mm-hmm. watch. You watch yourself do it. And yeah, you stop good. yourself where I want you to stop at that soft knee bend. That would kind of replicate the same angle when you're shooting your gun. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. We know what that looks like. Now close your eyes. Can you replicate it without seeing it? Yes mm-hmm. or no? Mm-hmm. All right, so now we're, we're getting the brain involved and we're already starting to bridge that gap between mm-hmm. the somatic or the body and then the, the neurological patterning of it. Um, and that's where we really start to see the progress being made because like, you can't just go through the motions. Like I can give him a Bulgarian split squat, a program, but if he's just going to do this drop down, stand up, hyperextend the knee type of thing, what good is yeah. that doing? What's it doing? Yeah. No, nothing, I think it's good. Nothing. It's changing the intention behind it. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't need to load him up because guess what? This 19 year old kid, he was sore for three days after doing bodyweight Bulgarian split squats with his eyes closed. Like, <laughs> I believe it, but it was effective enough. After yeah. a few weeks of training it, I think it was like three or four weeks, we didn't mm-hmm. put any weight in his hands. And then he was able to go out into the gym and perform well. That's the mm-hmm. goal, mm-hmm. right? The goal isn't loading up and see how much weight you can move with it. It's really what I, what I look at this as is how, how well do you feel? Mm-hmm. How good do you look? Because yeah. of course, we all like to look better naked. The aesthetic component is part of this. Um, <laughs> and then how well are you performing? Yeah. Look, feel, and perform. That's what it comes really down to. And if you're, if you're doing all three of those, then we're making progress in the right direction. We don't need to change anything, right? Yeah. The queuing yeah. thing, I laugh at that when I like first got into coaching and like I think everyone should work with kids at some point in their life. Oh my god, yes. <laughs> and, and like even into like especially <laughs> even high school athletes these days because they've just been sitting all this time and they have no clue what a squat is or anything like that. I was working oh, at um, a high school out here, and there was this freshman athlete, shortest little kid I've ever seen in my life. He was adorable. And shorter were, than you? Yes. <laughs> Hard to beat. But I had to clarify. I, got, I had to put it on a scale. Yeah, just put it on a scale. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry. Um, no, it's all good. He, Yeah, so I tell him to squat, and like instinctually, he 
goes down, comes up on his toes, like heels aren't even touching the ground. Like knee, knees are way far over the toes because mm-hmm. he can't even keep his heels on the ground. And I'm like, whoa, boy, <laughs> we've got some work to do on just like a bodyweight mm-hmm. squat here. And so I'm like cueing the shit out of him. Like, I, don't, I can't even remember all the things I'm saying, but as a new coach too, like that's just kind of what happens. You're just barfing cues, like trying to make it look right. And Ooh, I learned yeah, in that yeah. moment that like, I don't, even, I don't remember exactly what it was, but I said something. I said a cue and he did, his body did exactly what I said, but it was not what I was wanting to see. It was not what I was wanting him to do. And I was like, blew my mind because I was like, that, that is, that is what I said. Your body just literally did what I said to do, but that is not what I was wanting to see. And so then you kind of have to learn, okay, I can say that same cue, maybe even to someone else. And they was like, the result is exactly what I wanted. But mm-hmm. to this kid, I had to, uh, I was racking my brain with a million different ways to say the same thing. And then once you said, ultimately, it's like, all right, let's now look at it. Let me show you because there was no mirrors in the weight room where I was at. Let me show you what you're currently looking like. I'm going to try to imitate it as best as I can. (laughs) And then now I'm going to have you like, here's how I want you to like slowly transition it. Like we're going to do this movement. And then here's what it's supposed to look like. But that cueing thing. Oh my God. Yeah. You can tell one person some, a cue that like in your mind works. And they do exactly that. And it, the result was not what you wanted at all. <laughs> and isn't it great? Like you stand there and like, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> now what? Like, <laughs> you did but it. Thanks. You did it, right? Who was it? I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on this, Whitney. Like working with kids is, is such a challenge, but such mm-hmm. a valuable learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, because one, they don't have really all these ingrained patterns that we as adults have already put into our body. So yeah. in, in one sense, it actually, they're more moldable mm-hmm. and malleable, yeah, and it makes it a little bit easier to work with because you'll see some quicker changes right away. Mm-hmm. You don't have to break through all those old patterns. But then, mm-hmm. yes, the delivery is has got to be spot on because you can say something and it, and it will, like you mentioned, it'll come out and it'll be expressed in a way that you don't expect. And then you're like, oh, damn, now what? But then I look at it like this. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's cool. All right, so you, you're mm-hmm. able to do that. And then once again, what kind of constraints can we put around it to make it just a little bit different? It doesn't make it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. It's still, you still got from point A to point B. And that's really what it's, what it's about too, is like how many options you had to get from point A to point B, right? Mm-hmm. The more, yeah. the more okay. movement options that your body and your brain has utilized, that's where you're now, okay, now we have more to work with from a performance standpoint because your body's more robust, mm-hmm. but then also from an injury prevention standpoint, now we have a lot more to work with here. We are not overly stressing the same tissues over and over and over and over again. So you can distribute the load a little bit more. And that's like a, that's a pet peeve of mine. I'm going to get on a soapbox here for just a little bit. Go for it. Like <laughs> this whole idea of mobility training, it's just, it's, it's fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. It really is. Like it's because, you know, I could sit here and nitpick on the semantics of it because like, if you look at the research, Everybody thinks mobility is like flexibility, but they're totally different. Yeah, and you start to give me the you start to give me these definitions. They're like, well, flexibility is passive, and mobility. I'm like, no, that's not actually true either. Yeah. And so, yeah. if you look at the research, like mobility is defined in two ways. It's either the range of like the degrees of freedom that a joint has, mm-hmm. right? So your knee has two degrees of freedom. It can bend and extend. It can yep. rotate. It doesn't go side to side. That's how you yep. carry ACLs. But the hip, on the other hand can flex, extend, it can internally, externally rotate, and it can abduct and adduct. It has three mm-hmm. degrees of freedom, so therefore the hip is more mobile than the knee. Cool. Mm-hmm. I think we could all agree on that part. The other piece, though, is um, mobility, like how you get from point A to point B. 
If you mm. look at um, like uh, mobility aids, like a walker or a cane, it's literally in the definition. It assists mm. you in getting from point A to point B. Yeah. So that's the way that I like to define mobility is more so around the movement options, how many options you have to get from point A to point B. And that ultimately is my job. How can mm -hmm. I put you into enough situations, yeah. enough experiences to be able to develop more, more movement potential, more movement options, AKA more mobility. And guess what? It really comes down to putting you into situations where I know you're going to fail mm -hmm. and then having to work there. Like with that kid, was it, was it what you were looking for? Not no. necessarily, He's but now it was, felt it was different movement out. patterns, but it, it's one of his options. So you mm -hmm. don't really want to take it away from him. Like yeah. it's great to be able to squat down with your knees all the way out over your feet <laughs> yeah. with your heels off the ground. It's fantastic. That's one way to do it. Yeah. But then now, now, you know, okay, well, what can I do that limits that? And that forces him into these mm -hmm. other patterns. We have him work there. And that, that's really how you express it because there, there are no mobility exercises. There are no stability exercises. Your mobility and your ability to control your joints is really just a byproduct of your training. You're yeah, doing it no, right. I would agree. Yeah. It's, I had a question that had like popped up in my mind and yeah. you literally answered it as the question came up. Cause I was going to say, wavelength. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask like, as kind of, I would call like a movement library, right? Like mm -hmm. you want to expose yourselves to as many movements as you can. So the, uh, yeah, you have a greater option of movements to choose from in any given scenario. Uh, mm -hmm. So my question was like for a, a sport, like shooting, that is very specific. Um, like there's not a lot of movements that go on in a shooting sport. Mm -hmm. Um, like, would you suggest being very specific at this movement pattern that they need or exposing them to a wider variety of movements? So like you said, they have more options to choose from when the time comes. The answer is yes. All of yes. That. Um, Every single thing. Because there's two different ends of the spectrum here or two sides of the coin, however you really want to look at it. Um, because we are all uniquely different in the way that we're designed. Mm -hmm. We are going, specifically for shooting, we are going to move that gun just a little bit differently. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine. That's good. Right. But once again, is there a more efficient way for your body to do it? And I would argue yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and it just depends where you're at on like a training spectrum as well. Like somebody who doesn't have any history of training, you give them any type of novel stimulus, it's going to make their body more robust. I, it doesn't matter what I give them. Right. Yeah, for sure. Right? Um, now, you never, you never really want to, you know, remove them from what they're doing if they're doing it very well, unless you look at it from two different perspectives, which is are always my arguments for this. Um, one being like, if you're performing really well at it, that's great. But mm -hmm. how long can you do it for? Mm -hmm. Like, for me, if I watch somebody lock out their knees and move that shotgun with the Skeeter trap, by just moving their low back and their hands, like their arms. You can get away with that for a little while, but it's just a matter of time until you break down. Mm -hmm. We know that's going to happen. So then it comes down to the choice. And I always give the athlete the choice. Like, do you want to start working on this now? Yes or no? Mm -hmm. Right? Because you have to be into it. Like, you have to be bought into it for it to be effective, number one. Mm -hmm. And just understand that you may, you, you may actually experience performance detriment during the process yep. because mm -hmm. you're changing yeah. your body. Yeah. But this is your choice, right? And, is it you know, often you can... that people say no? I like to think that I'm very convincing. <laughs> but yeah. yes, people do say no because they yeah. have to, you have to meet them where they're at, mm -hmm. right? If they're not ready for it, they're not ready for it. Now, I will say this, the majority of the time they do come back months, years later, and like, okay, I'm ready to work on this now. And mm -hmm. you often have to ask the question of like, okay, what happened? 
<laughs> and what it usually and it usually yeah. comes down to the other thing I was going to talk about, right? Is you either you either um, start to hurt, like you experience chronic pain, or you're hurt, mm, like yeah. injure yourself, mm. or you reach a plateau in your performance and you can't break through. And those are the two reasons why people always come back, mm-hmm. right there. Uh, there's yeah. this one girl actually who's flying out to, to work with us in Texas next week, um, where last November, same thing, took her a few months to get to me, right? Where she knew she wanted to, but wasn't quite ready. Uh, and we overhauled everything. Like we changed her stock on the shotgun. Mm-hmm. We changed mm-hmm. her stance on the range. We changed the way that she was training. We changed the way that she moved the gun. And that was a lot, okay? And there was a lot in like a four-month time period, but she was ready for it and she committed and went full bore right into it, which is what you need to do, right? And then so she ended up having the best year of her career now mm-hmm. as a shooting athlete. Nice she's the reigning world champion in female ski. Okay, which That's is awesome. pretty, pretty fucking cool. And so now yeah. like we're gearing up to the Olympics and she did it, did it at the right time point, a little bit of an off season going into the full competition year. And now she's ingrained these patterns. She's into the training. Paris is probably going to be a pretty successful year for her. Next year. Yes, that's awesome. I think I would even argue, and I sounds like maybe you would agree, the more specific the sport is or the movement is that you're doing, the more variety you need to have outside of that, right? Because Absolutely. then, yeah, your body just gets used to moving. Yeah. Same with powerlifting, right? Like when I first started, it was yeah. squat, bench, deadlift, and that was all I did. And if you saw your girl try to do anything lateral, it wasn't <laughs> Like I played sports growing up, but because I competed for like at three, four years into it, like yeah. I wasn't doing lateral movements anymore. Um, and then as I, you do lose it. Yeah. yeah, you, you very much do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so then once I started, like that was all throughout college. And then once I finished college and was like getting into coaching and all of that, and I'm like, oh, I need to be able to demonstrate these explosive movements, these lateral <laughs> movements, these rotational <laughs> movements. And I've not moved in these planes of motion in like three or four <laughs> years and developing that again yeah. was really hard. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, it's difficult. If you don't use it, you lose it for sure. That 100% true neurologically. Um, and I, you know, wait, first question for you. What sports did you play? Were you a soccer player? I did soccer and volleyball and I ran like yes. track and cross country. Volleyball? You, you had to be like a setter in the back or something. I was a libero, so like back row only. And there it is. <laughs> I, had, I, had I love ball. I miss volleyball so much, God. Yeah, no, it, I used to play some sand volleyball in college too. Nice. It was yeah. a lot of fun. I always picture like Tom Cruise and Top Gun. Like that's, <laughs> that's like always the image of, of sand volleyball that I have. That's right. He was only, he's only like five, five. Um, <laughs> anyway, I totally lost my, my train of thought there. Uh, variety is the key there too. If you, mm-hmm. don't, you don't use it, you lose it. And so, yeah, absolutely. But it just comes down to like what you're training for from a specificity standpoint. Like, and, and, and here, here's the deal. I would argue that everything that you just described, like being able to rotate and move laterally, are pretty universal human movement patterns that we should all be able to do to to some extent, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And if if not only from a joint health perspective, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So you can, and you can go as deep down the rabbit hole as you want and grain those movement patterns for your sport specific skill, but you got to be able to work on the other stuff and at least keep those types of patterns in there so that your body Mm -hmm. doesn't degrade so fast. Uh, yeah. so I, like I look at it this way, like, you know, um, calluses on our hands. Mm-hmm. Okay. We all have them as strength coaches. Our athletes have them too. When you tear a callus, is it the callus's fault? No, it's the skin around it. Mm-hmm. That's the fault. The stuff that hasn't expo- been exposed to the stress or the load. Yeah. That's what tears. 
Okay, so when all these crazy CrossFitters are doing multiples of butterfly pull-ups, when their hands tear, get tear and torn to shit, it's not the callus's fault. It's the skin that hasn't been adapted to it, usually around mm. here that tears. Okay, and so the same yeah. thing happens internally inside the joints as well. If we only move our joints in very specific lines of pull of tension and force and load, you're going to overstress and overload those very specific areas mm -hmm. of the joint. Maybe it'd be the, the capsule of the joint, the surfaces of like the tibia and the femur inside the knee. I'll keep keep the knee example here, the meniscus. Like you see it all the time. People tear the meniscus. It's because it's forces being imparted on very one very specific area of it. And you're not getting any rotation through the knee. Okay, so if you're constantly putting those same lines of pull and force on the joint, you're gonna experience degradation over time. It's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. Right. But it wasn't that area's fault. That was actually the strong point. It was just everything else around it that wasn't doing its job. All right. So it's our job that I think as, as providers and strength coaches to be able to give their, our athletes more opportunities to, to get more exposure to those areas that aren't getting that force and load. Yeah. Yeah. That, and I That's would even point. argue like when kind of like you mentioned for someone who competes in powerlifting mm -hmm. or like a very specific sport, like rotation, lateral movements, all that kind of stuff are stuff you do in everyday life. So if you're not even exposing yourself to those movements and training, like the more time that goes by, we should, I think as coaches or whoever you're working with the athletes, we should have their longevity in mind, right? Not just, yes, they might, yeah. we might want them to be really good at their sport or whatever it is that they're doing in this moment right now. But keep in mind that like, they want to live a long life after this too, or they might yes. get injured tomorrow and they might not be able to do the sport anymore. And so if we're not keeping the, yeah, the longevity aspect in mind, like we're doing them a huge disservice. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why like my company rooted in movement, yeah. our focus is our company is a, a human performance company that focuses on holistic health and movement across the lifespan. It is about uh -huh. the longevity side of things yeah. and the vitality component of it. How long can you perform? sport that you like to perform, right? Number one, or mm -hmm. how long can you do the things that you love to do? Hopefully you can do it into your eighties and nineties. That's the goal. Yeah, like, that'd be I, look at my, I look at myself now and like, I always give the example of oh, I'm actually in, in better shape and I feel better in my thirties than I did in my twenties because I'm continually growing, learning and evolving mm -hmm. in my understanding of what makes me feel good and how to move my body in the most appropriate way for me. Right. So I always see that not compounding 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 <laughs> words <laughs> compounding yeah words are tough some days um, <laughs> compounding like into my 40s like i want to yeah. feel better my 40s ended in my 30s feel better my 50s ended in my 40s mm -hmm. and kind of use that as my metric moving forward i think that should be that should be a goal for all of us yeah i think that's so funny that you say that because i've actually heard a number of other coaches friends whatever who have said the exact same and i think one of those like the more you know like you don't know better or you don't do better until you know Ooh. better um, and so over time, hopefully you're putting yourself around people and in scenarios that you're learning more, you're growing, you're becoming smarter about certain things. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I've heard so many people be like, God, I feel so much better now in my thirties than I did in my twenties. And because they know more, because they know, they know Absolutely. better now, they're not doing stupid things anymore. They know, yeah, I do want to live a long, healthy life. And so I'm going to change up my training. I'm not going to beat myself to shit every time while that is fun every now and then <laughs> I'm not going to do it all the time, every single <laughs> workout like I used to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it always comes down to the psychological component. Like, why did we do those things when we were younger? Yeah. Yeah. I, I could, I can't speak for you. I could speak for myself though. It's all about impressing girls. Like, I mean, that's, <laughs> Yes. Realistically, as a college kid, that's all I had to read. The only reason why you were going to the gym, right, was to build up your chest and your back and to look good in a bathing suit. Yeah, like, yeah. Come on. I think everyone, 
<laughs> to some degree, if you're involved, especially if you do it long enough, if you're involved in weight training, there's some ego aspect of it. Like I'm not as strong Always. as when I used to be when I competed powerlifting. And I even like, I was 115 pounds and I could deadlift over 300 pounds. I cannot Damn. do that anymore. And I weigh more than that. <laughs> like just don't, I don't weigh <laughs> that way anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, but I say that to say like that training, like I beat myself to shit when I was doing that. And like that kind of built my ego though, because of how strong I was. And sometimes just sometimes when I want to go deadlift, I want to see like how much can I do? And it hurts every time, <laughs> but there's that well, little bit of ego. That's like, let's just see what's there. Yeah. And I think that little bit of ego is healthy. We For need sure. that. It's yeah. a drive. It's a dopamine hit. It, it feels it is, good. Absolutely. It's just learning how to work with it yeah better than trying to you know fully just surrender to it all the time <laughs> like no this is a relationship you're not going to take control <laughs> yeah 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 and yeah. every now and then yeah. it's okay but i if i push myself too far i regret it the next yeah. day every single time <laughs> and, and there, there's some great awareness there as well right for sure so. <laughs> <laughs> what is this pain yeah maybe that yeah. was it oh, worth it yeah. was it not yeah <laughs> gonna make a better decision do that one yeah <laughs> we're coming up on an hour here matt i feel like we could literally talk forever so we could, maybe we, we have another one because so many other things i wanted to ask you about like you said you're you're a hunter you're involved in hunting um mm -hmm. and one thing that i don't know if you've kept up with a couple of the recent ones but i know you're big into like mental health as well um and that is kind of like slowly as i've done this podcast become something that like I don't know. It's really important to me and I've been able to incorporate it into like almost every episode so far. Um, so that just means we have to do another one sometime. <laughs> I am totally game for that. Yeah. This has been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> yeah, it's been awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. So I do end every episode with asking yeah. everyone, what does wild strength mean to you? Um, and you can really take that how you want to, uh, you can make it a psychological answer. Like with mental health, you can say wild strength to me is, putting down a big buck and carrying it out or wild strength to me is like hitting something in the weight room, whatever that looks like to you. Uh, but I, I do. Yeah. And all of them with that question. So I asked you, what does it mean to you? I, I love that question. Um, and the first thing that comes to mind is to be useful. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the, one of the reasons why I continue to do what I do for my own training is to be useful, like to be able to, like you mentioned, to go out and hunt and be able to drag a deer three miles, mm -hmm. then be able to do it myself as well yeah. or to be useful for other people mm -hmm. like when, when they're in need like to be able to go and lift something into the back of a truck for them or you know god forbid something falls on somebody but lift it off like i want to be able to help <laughs> yeah right and i think that's a great metric though for just you mm -hmm. know not just men in society either but like you know we should be able to be involved in a situation like that and be able to lend a hand right mm -hmm. and not have to worry about hurting our backs or not have to like question ourselves and we go and do it. It's always comes back to the old Boy Scout mentality for me of being prepared. Right. And so yeah. how much mm -hmm. can I, like, can I physically and mentally be prepared for? And I think that's a, that's a great definition for, for wild strength because you can put yourself in some pretty wild scenarios and situations and are you going to be able to come out that unscathed and actually uh, be useful in that scenario as well? Yeah, I would agree. And I think I've kind of like had this conversation with a couple of friends before, like even outside of the podcast is like the, not only if you're in the weight room, are you like physically getting stronger, but like it boosts your, mm -hmm. your confidence, confidence and like the ability to, like you said, be useful for something to happen. And like, 
we'll use a scenario of like lifting something off of somebody if it falls on them. Like I want to be able to see that and have the confidence to go in and be like, I can help this per- person yes. versus seeing it happen and being like, oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> what do I do? Like, I can't help yeah. them. I'm useless. Like, yeah, exactly. It does you no good. I think that's great. Well, thank you so much, Matt. <laughs> and I've enjoyed having you on here. All right. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Wild Strength Podcast. Um, if you haven't realized, I am absolutely terrible at ending these conversations. I try to ask each person like where can listeners find you. And I just end up forgetting because I stop the conversation. And then once I'm done recording with them, I continue to have a further conversation with them um, off the mic, off camera, however you want to say that. Um, But I will work on that. I will certainly get better. If you know me, you know I'm a pro at the Irish goodbyes and I can leave in the middle of a conversation. I can leave in the middle of a group setting. And I'm just a pro at that, but I'll work on it. I'll get better at ending these episodes. But um, if you do want to find Matt on Instagram, he is on there as Rooted in Movement, and movement is spelled M-V-M-N-T. Or you can just go to Instagram and type in Dr. Matt Zanis. Uh, he puts out a lot of good information as far as training and movement, um, and then he shows off a lot of what he does with the USA shooting team. Um, If you could, if you really enjoyed this episode, if you could go like it, comment, subscribe on whatever platform you are watching or listening on. Um, And once again, if there is a platform that the podcast is not on that you would like for it to be on, don't hesitate. Find me on Instagram, shoot me a message and let me know, and I will try to get it on there for you. Thanks again and have a great day. Thank you.